All right. Would you guys pray with me before we get started? Our Father, uh, we come together today to, uh, as we seek, seek you together, and uh, I pray that you would make known that name, Father, and that we are your children, and that we would be struck by that, um, that your name would be lifted up here today and in our lives as we go. Um, I pray that whatever is spoken, whatever is sung, whatever actions we do to participate together, that your Holy Spirit uses it to speak to one another, um, to point us to Jesus Christ, our Savior, um, and so that we would be led to Jesus so that we may also lead others to Jesus as, as we come together in unity. Uh, I pray specifically right now for me, um, for, for my words. Uh, I am certainly unable, but the Holy Spirit, you are able to speak, and you are certainly able to, uh, to let us hear whatever you'd have us hear, and to move our hearts however you'd move them. So I pray that you do that this morning, and that, uh, that our hearts should be changed. We love you, and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this morning we're talking about Christian unity, and we're doing this series, Are You Serious About Christian Unity, this morning. So, But before we get going, I kind of wanted to read this excerpt from uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, Life Together, and it's, it's kind of just like, I'd like us to take it as like a warning maybe, just to hear, hear the warning, I guess, as he's putting out there for us as we, as we begin to look at what Christian unity actually is. And it goes like this. Innumerable times, a whole Christian community has broken down because it had sprung from a wish dream. The serious Christian, set down for the first time in a Christian community, is likely to bring with him a very definite idea of what Christian life together should be and then try to realize it. But God's grace speedily shatters such dreams. Just as surely as God desires to lead us to a knowledge of genuine Christian fellowship, so surely must, we must be overwhelmed by a great disillusionment disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, and if we are fortunate, with ourselves. And then he goes on to say that God hates visionary dreaming. It makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. He enters the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own law, and judges the brethren and God himself accordingly. He stands adamant, a living reproach to all others in the circle of brethren. He acts as if he is the creator of the Christian community, as if if his dreams bind men together. When things do not go his way, he calls the effort a failure. He sees the community going to smash. So he becomes first an accuser of his brethren, then the accuser of God, and finally the, the despairing accuser of himself. So that's harsh, maybe. I don't know, but... I want us to hear that as we go into Christian unity because I think that he's right. Like, as we sit down and, and contemplate what it means for us to be in Christian community, I think we get pictures in our head, you know, of what that means for us. And, I mean, I've, I'm definitely guilty of that. What does it look like for me, maybe, or what does it look like for you to be in Christian community? We get the idea of, well, we'd all sell possessions and give them to one another. And that, I mean, that's a biblical thing, right? So we come saying, I'm going to go and be a part of this Christian community and they better start selling some stuff and giving it to me, right? Or, or maybe it's like just laying hands on one another and praying, you know, over one, I, I don't know, maybe some of these, these acts, we, 
we put out there. Um, it could be working on like a mission project together, doing some service together, you know, making some sort of impact on a community together, whether it's passing out tracts or flyers or whatever, studying this stuff together, agreeing on theological issues together. Those are all, I'm not saying they're bad things. But I'm asking that as we begin to dive into the, the idea of what Christian unity is this morning, that we just kind of try to figure out what it is you picture when, when we say those words, Christian unity, and then forget it, just for a little bit. And so that we might would come and say, what is Christian unity as defined by Christ, not by us? And then, and then we'll go from there. And uh, maybe our dreams won't go to smash, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, which is a pretty cool word. Anyways. So, in asking, are you serious about Christian unity, I think that we should set out by defining Christian unity. And that's going to be pretty much the, most, the thing we talk about the most over the next few minutes. So what is Christian unity? Well, to get us started off, I want to start with uh, telling you about this little thing that happened. So I went to Charlotte, like, maybe a year ago, right, to go to this seminar with Brad House, and he's like a pastor of community or something like that at Mars Hill in Seattle. And we have missional communities here. That's our small groups or community groups or whatever you want to call them. And the seminar was about those and how to do them effectively uh, and different strategies and all that. But anyways, at the very beginning, in the first session, Brad House got in front of all of us on a big whiteboard, which is always cool. And, you know, he got out his marker and he was like, if somebody, you know, came to your church and or you've invited somebody to your church and said, hey, we'd really like you to come to our missional community or our community group or our small group, whatever. Um, And they asked, why would I come to that? What would be your answer? So, you know, there's probably 50 or 60 of us in the room, and people just started, like, you know, shouting stuff out. Um, Accountability, study, fellowship, support, nurturing, um, praying together. You know, these are things that were being thrown out. And as, as, the word, as people would say different things that they would come to a, a community group for, he would write them on the board. And so he'd write them in three different columns. They weren't defined columns. He'd just column, column, column. They made no sense to anybody. And so in the middle column, it was just like filling up with these words. Accountability, uh, praying, fellowship, support, nurturing. Those type of words were, were filling it up. The third and the first column were pretty much staying empty. Somebody said like, I don't know what they said. I don't remember, honestly. But, uh, you know, service, community service. That was in the third column. And then finally, somebody did say something like, because of Jesus, which just seemed to be a pretty good answer. And he put that over in the first column. And then at the end, he went up above it and just wrote titles over each column. Over the third column, he wrote, what for? Over the middle column, he wrote, what we do or how we do it. And then over the first one, he put Why? And his point was, in the middle column, the what we do or how we do it fills up really fast. We, we tend to know those things, and, and that's what we're interested in. But the why and the what for seem to get overlooked, and we don't think about them. So, the why of why we would come into community group, or community, you know, was the because of Jesus answer was in there. And then the what for was like the missional answers. And then in the middle, it was like how we do. And his point was just that, uh, like I said, we, you know, we, we tend to not think about the why and the what for, but the how we do and, and what we would go about doing. So today, 
I kind of want to follow that train of thought and start with the why of Christian unity. That was a long way to say that I was going to ask why. Sorry. All right. So, we'll probably go ahead and jump into some scripture here. Here's the thing. We spent, like, forever in the book of Ephesians. So I thought we'd just hang out there today because I found it kind of hard and maybe unnecessary to go somewhere else to speak about Christian unity. So we're just going to go right back to where we just came from. We're going to hang out in Ephesians a good bit today um, when, as we ask why and what for. So we're going to turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 through 7. And it says this, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And I like that at the end where he says that in verse 7 that we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. And when I read that, it takes me right back to Genesis. So I was going to take us back there real quick and, and try and answer this question, why community? Genesis 1, chapter, or Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 through 27. You may be familiar with it. Uh, it's in the creation of man. And he says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image and in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. So we were created in the image of God and it wasn't just, I mean there's just so many, you know, Listen to the words that God uses to describe his own image. Let us make man in our image and our likeness. And then he creates them in his image. And in Genesis 2.18, just, just a chapter over, uh, we get a little more detail. Then the Lord God said, this is when Adam like, has been there for a little bit. He's like naming animals and stuff. And God's like, I think it's not good for him to be alone. So that's what he says in verse 2.18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And so that's the, that's the story of the creation of us, right? We were created together in the image of God to image, to image God. So in Ephesians 2, 4 through 7, uh, I mean 2, 4 through 7, yeah, two, chapter 2, 4 through 7, um, Paul shows that in Jesus we are saved. We are saved to and reconciled to that which we were created to be and do. And that is that we should walk in his good works, not our good works, his good works that he created us for. And that is basically to be image bearers together. Um, and that's something we do together. We, we bear God's image best together. God himself is in communion with himself, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so he created us to image that back to him, to reflect that back to himself. So we are saved and reconciled back to togetherness with God and with each other through Jesus. Um, so you can be saved, but you cannot be, you cannot be saved 
and not be saved to unify to, to unity with other Christians. Does that make sense? Because God's what Jesus Christ was doing was reconciling us back, and that's what he's still up to, that's what we're up to, is reconciling us back to our created purpose for his good works, which is to image him, the way he created us to image him, and that is in our togetherness. So why the why answer, or the why question of Christian unity is because we find our individual identity in Christ. We may, we find that in Christ we are created to be united. And in this, we image God the way we are created to image God. Now, to answer the, the what for, or, um, you know, the why of Christian unity is that, the, the, the purpose and the mission of Christian unity is what for, the answer of which is not really so different from the first, probably. But we'll turn to First Peter, because I feel like Peter just says it very clearly. First Peter chapter 2, 9 through 10. I'm sure it'll come up on the screen. <clears throat> Excuse me. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We are a people. We weren't always a people. I mean, we were created to be a people, but then we the fall, and we weren't always a people, and we hadn't always received mercy, but now through Jesus, and then through Jesus we have received mercy, and we can be a people again. He saved us back to and reconciling us back to God and each other. And what's the purpose of it, the what for? Right there he says, it's, we are a people to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. So this isn't like something that we do like, I don't know if I can even clarify this well, but, you know, God saves, or Jesus saves us, and so we should proclaim his name and his excellencies, right? And so we just come together and do that because he kind of says we should. It's not really like that. Like, he saved us to that, you know? We are saved into union with each other, and our unity together does proclaim his name, and it's his work happening through us, not something that we can do on our own, certainly. So, yeah, so there's no answer for how you're going to take it seriously, I guess. God's just got to do it. I'm just, I'm just kidding. We'll get there. Not funny. Sorry. All right. So we're going to go back to Ephesians. I'm sorry, I'm jumping around. There's a lot of scripture, but uh, we're, we're pretty much staying there. All right, Ephesians 2, 19 through 22 says, So then... You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's really cool to put on the end of that. You and I were saved to the image of to be the image of Jesus to this world, uh, not in and of you know ourselves, but uh, or even through you know our feeble works at at team, you know like it's not something we can come together and throw together a team and say all right we're gonna go be Jesus to the world. It's not really something we could throw together. Uh, if I had a place, you know, never mind. Like I said, all right. So, but uh, that's not something we can throw together. But it's something that the Spirit does through us in our togetherness um, is that we become 
the, the dwelling place of Jesus Christ in our togetherness. So we would be proclaiming the excellencies of him to the world. And then it, and uh, the kind of comment on that by the spirit thing at the end there, we look in Ephesians three fourteen through 19, where Paul says that this is the reason he prays. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. If you are saved, the Spirit is certainly working in you, reconciling you to the Father in and through Jesus, and he's certainly working through you to, recon, uh, to reconcile, reconcile you and I in and through Jesus Christ to each other. Um, so the why question was, so why Christian unity? Uh, because you find that you are created in the image of God and you do this best and you image God best in union with others. And what for? What's the purpose to be his dwelling place and to proclaim his excellencies to each other and to others and ultimately back to God himself. So, what do we do? Um, In asking the question, how do we take Christian unity seriously, how do we do that? Um, I think maybe a a better question for us today is maybe a less uh, prescriptive question and more of a descriptive question is what are the symptoms of authentic Christian unity? And I think we see this in several scriptures. But... As before we get into that real quick, I want us to look at what Paul says in Ephesians 4, 21 through 24. I'm going out of order a little bit on this, and, and maybe I'd be best just like stay in the way that Paul says it. But the reason I'm jumping ahead for a minute is that I want us to see the next part through a different lens. And I think this kind of sets that up. Ephesians 4, 21 through 24 It says, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on a new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. So this comes right after the passage we're about to talk about. And like I said, I want us to see through a little bit of a different lens here. Um, because all the word, all the, all of a sudden, in all this talk of unity in chapter four, the word self starts popping up in this this part where Paul's talking, and he's saying like, put off your old self and get a new self, and then he goes on to say, and then in that new self you'll be, you know, able to be unified together. And that new self is, you've heard, you know, put off the old, put on the new, put on Christ, and in Christ you'll be together. So. In a second, we'll probably, we're going to start looking at, this, like I said, the symptoms of authentic Christian unity. I don't, I don't know if that's the right way to say it or not, but what does it look like when there's authentic Christian community going on? We're going to look at that stuff, and, and I guess what I'm asking is, it starts with you, and so I want us to ask ourselves as we go through these things, questions about ourselves. Um, so the beginning for you is to turn your eyes to Jesus, and allow the Spirit to turn your eyes inward and test your heart, kind of like what we saw Paul saying in chapter 3. Um, yeah, this is the question. Are you, are you like Michael Jackson, 
looking at the man in the mirror, you know? Or are you going to look across the aisle and say, if Christian community was the way I think it should be, then he or she would do this, he or she would do that, Ben would say this, are we going to do that, or are we going to start with ourselves? And so that's the first thing. If you want to take Christian unity seriously, start in the next few minutes asking questions of yourself. It starts with you. It doesn't start with anybody else. Jesus is saving you, too, and reconciling you to Christian unity. Allow and trust that the Holy Spirit will work in your brothers and sisters around you and allow him to work in you and engage him in that. So, through that lens, we're going to look at the symptoms of authentic Christian unity. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, the beginning of that same chapter. He says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, which is to proclaim the excellencies of he who has called us out of darkness. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So what does it look like for you to be living in Christian unity with your brothers and sisters in Christ? It means you've put on humility. It means I've put on gentleness. With patience, we are bearing with one another in love, and we are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. So, just real quick, start with yourself. Start with ourselves right now. Beginning with your own heart and my own heart, turning our eyes to Jesus and looking through his eyes at ourselves, are you eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit? You know? That's tough, man. Are you eager to bear with one another in love? I have lots of stories that say I'm not pretty often. Ephesians 4, 31 through 32 says, this is at the end of that same chapter, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. You know, I want us to see that I'm not saying like these are the commandments. You have to stop doing this and start doing this. No, this is what you're saved to. This is a gift. This is good stuff. This is better for us. This is what we are created to be like, and we will find joy in these ways, right? Not bitter, not wrathful, not angry, not clamoring and slandering one another, but being filled with kindness and tenderheartedness and being able to forgive one another because we have found that we are forgiven. So these are questions you should ask yourself. You know, am I bitter? Am I angry? Do I slander others? Am I kind-hearted? Am I forgiving? Here's a pretty popular scripture that you might might know. It's from Galatians chapter 5, 20 through, 22 through 26. And it puts it better than, than I do, the symptoms thing. It should just be the fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. If we're walking in the Spirit, if we're putting off the old and putting on Christ, 
deliberately and intentionally engaging with what the Spirit is doing in our hearts. The fruit of that is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So we ask our questions as we ask those questions of ourselves, or we should be. Does that describe you? Does it describe me? Probably sometimes, and probably not at other times. Uh, has your flesh been crucified? Are you putting, putting off yourself and forgetting yourself? There's a great book by Tim Keller. It's like super tiny, but it's called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. I think you should get it. It's awesome. And he says, yeah, forget yourself. It's awesome. And put on Christ. And you don't have to... There is no more Ben Ritchie. It's Jesus. And it's really good. And you're filled with joy, right? What does it look like to purposely look to Jesus and to purposely walk in the Spirit? I don't know. Doesn't it sound like everything I just talked about is just really just talking about what we've always talked about? Just being a Christian like looks like this? And I think that's because we can't separate being a Christian from being united to other Christians. Because that's what Jesus was doing, is doing. He's saved us too and reconciled us to back to our, our, our created purposes, which is to walk in good works, to be united together so that we might bear the image of Jesus to each other, to the world, and ultimately back to God himself. So, the obvious final question is, that's great. I can look at myself, I guess, but how, how can I really look like all those attributes that the New Testament just goes on and on and on with, right? How can I actually look like Jesus? Isn't that why Jesus came? Because he looked like Jesus and I didn't? Uh, Yeah, true. But it has got to be something we can do. So I ask the question, what can I do? If it starts in my heart, uh, how do I get to work on myself? And if it starts in your heart, how do you get to work on yourself? Like today, right now. Uh, The first thing, I'm going to go to prescription now, I guess. The first thing I would prescribe, and and this is something I do for myself and it doesn't work every time, so I'm I'm just throwing it out there. Right, but this is something that I is very helpful for me. Is to ask questions of yourself, just like uh, just like we just were. You know, take those things. Am I kind-hearted? Am I slandering? Or, or you can ask those simple questions. I'm going to give you a very personal example of something that I, I tend to ask myself a lot. And before I even put it out there, sometimes it works. Sometimes I forget to ask the question, and so I end up not looking very much like Jesus. Sometimes I ask the question. And uh, pretty much every time I ask that, I actually go and ask the question, even if I've already messed up, it still points me back to Jesus. And maybe points someone else back to Jesus too. And it's just basically the simple question that I've formulated for myself. As Claire, I'm going to use Claire because she's my wife and I can talk about her. Right? But I, I probably use this with you too or, or with anybody that's a friend or, or whoever. But... Uh, if I have some tension with Claire or we are arguing about something, um, I often have to ask myself whether I'm fighting to protect me because I'm hurt, because my feelings are hurt, and my pride is being bruised, or if I'm fighting out of a true hurt for my wife. Because in that moment, I see that she's not knowing the love of Jesus Christ. Right? Or, or, or if it's with a friend, you know, same difference. I ask the question, am I hurt by them or am I hurt for them? All right. 
because it, it's, it's just a, it's a good litmus test, I guess, for me. To say, if I'm being hurt, then obviously I haven't put off myself, because if myself was not here, then it couldn't be hurt. But I can be hurt, like Jesus Christ is hurt. If I've put on Christ, then I can be hurt for others, because they don't know how much I value them, because they don't know how much Jesus Christ values them. And so in the moment, I could be arguing with my wife and fighting to protect me and being hurt and whatever, my pride's bruised or whatever. And I have to ask, and, and if I'm lucky, and I'm trying to make this a better discipline, I can stop and ask the question. And most of the time what happens is I have to apologize and repent and say, I'm sorry, I need Jesus. And I probably don't even do it very eloquently. I kind of, I usually probably do it poorly, but... At least it points me back to Christ, and in some way, I hope it, it's pointing my wife back to Jesus as well. And and it's not just with me and my wife. That's something I try to put into you know all my relationships. So I don't know. I would I would prescribe questions like that. I would prescribe that question. Ask yourself when you're dealing with others: Are you hurt by them or hurt for them? You'll know from that question whether you're putting off the old self and putting on Christ. So that's a pretty good question, in my opinion. It helps me. Uh, but you can formulate your own questions armed with the knowledge of scripture make questions that just wrap around the scripture you know that you can ask of yourself constantly Uh, formulate scripture saturated test questions and ask them that's what I wrote down certainly there's many 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 disciplines that we need to do spiritual disciplines here's the thing I find that most of them come down to, to basically three things knowing and reading scripture prayer and practical living, right? There's many things we can do. And today, I really just want to focus, as we close, on, at the end here, on one, one discipline that I think could really change us. And that's prayer. Actually, before I go to prayer, I do want to say that. I almost skipped something. Look at that. Okay. So, Whatever discipline you practice, whether it be prayer or, or reading the Bible or fasting or meditating or, or whatever it is, or coming to church on Sundays, which this is a discipline. This is a spiritual discipline. We come here to point each other to Jesus Christ and to be pointed to Christ. You know, I just would say, whatever discipline you're doing, ask why you're doing it. Uh, that's just a quick question. Because, you know, I think that maybe, I think church is a good example. Maybe uh, on Sunday mornings, many Christians, maybe not in this church, but maybe elsewhere, do go to church as a sort of an escape from the real world, as if Sunday is some sort of like rejuvenating escape so that you can go back and face the real world. You know? I've definitely treated it like that at times. But the truth is, is that this spiritual discipline is not supposed to be an escape or some sort of like carnival cruise from the real world that you work in through the week. Coming to the, on Sunday is, is meant to be a spiritual discipline that's meant for encounter with the real world, not escape, encounter. Because when we come together, we get a glimpse, hopefully, as we point each other to Jesus Christ, we get a glimpse of the kingdom of God. And we get a little bit of a reality, the reality of what the kingdom of God is really like. And hopefully, that glimpse fuels us into our work week and into the rest of our lives so that we don't escape what we think is reality. Instead, we encounter the whole reality and hopefully are able to live under the reign of our king throughout the week. So I, that, that's kind of what I'm getting at. Whatever discipline you do, just ask why you're doing it. Are you doing it as an escape, or are you doing it as a place to encounter the kingdom of God? Because in the, when we encounter the kingdom of God, we encounter the fact that we are in a kingdom, that we are a nation, that we are a people, that we are a royal priesthood called out to proclaim the excellencies of his name. 
So, but I specifically want to talk about prayer because I think this is one thing that we really, really need to be practicing. I would ask you this, where is our encounter with the kingdom any more vivid and clear than, or close than, than in times of prayer? We may never be more in tune with the reality of the kingdom than in our prayer time. Maybe it's because we're shutting everything else out and just like focusing in on it. Uh, but it has been said that we don't pray in order to change God. Maybe there's some discussion, I don't know, but that we pray in order that we might be changed. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, prayer is certainly a thick you know, deep, wide thing. Uh, it's multi-layered, and every word that we say might have 20 meanings, I guess, and it can be complicated, certainly. But here's what I, I kind of want to ask us this morning. When we pray like the Lord's Prayer, you know, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. When we pray the Lord's Prayer for our Father's will to be done on earth as in heaven, and for our ability to forgive others, and for us, and for our daily bread, uh, we may be praying a lot of things, but aren't we, at the very core, asking that our lives be changed? Aren't we asking that his will will be done on earth? Just, just do your will on earth as you do it in heaven, but aren't we also asking that we would be agents of that, like that he would use us to do his will on earth? Uh, and aren't we actually asking that uh, your kingdom come on heaven, but actually that we would be part of the work that doesn't? Aren't we, being, aren't we asking to be, be changed so that we can see the way he sees through the lens he's looking at things and live lives like he would have us live? And then there's the language of that same prayer, the Lord's Prayer, in all pretty much New Testament, several New Testament writings and prayers. It's, it's our Father. Forgive us. Give us. You know? You hear that? Our and us and us and it. It's a prayer that we're praying together. You know, I don't know. It's, not, it, it's a reminder that we are not only lifting our prayers individually, but they are rising with the whole body of Christ. That together, like, we're, we're realizing the reality of the kingdom and hallowing God's name together and petitioning him with the same things. Come, Lord Jesus, come. I think that we meet the reality of kingdom when we say our Father and we wrap around that like Christian unity and the fact that we are called back to be a people who image God. So, what says this isn't about me and it's about Christ any better than the reminder that we join with the whole host of creatures joining together to proclaim the excellencies of he who is reconciling to the whole earth and back to God. Reconciling us back to the whole earth and back to God. What if we prayed prayers like that? That's kind of the question this morning. If you take Christian unity seriously, I'm asking you to join with me in this, right? Is it, what if we pray, prayed prayers like that? Prayers that talk to God and let God take over our mouths and our words and pray on our behalf, pretty much, that, that we would be changed and be imitators of Christ. Or prayers that said, I know what you're up to because you've spelled it out and I want in. Crush me, make me forget myself, make me aware of you, humble me, make me not bitter, make me patient, make me kind, make me like Jesus. And would I be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit? Whether I encounter other Christians today or not, um, may I be united together and fueled toward mission with them by your Spirit.
Do you think we could come away with, from prayers like that without a real sense of the kingdom? Would we be made aware of what, it, of what we might look like to live under the reign of a king like that? I mean, would we not come away with that aware that it would be a little easier or come away aware of the kingdom and so it would make it a little easier to live like him? John Bunyan, uh, author of The Pilgrim's Progress, said, Prayer will make a man cease from sin, or sin will entice a man to cease from prayer. I, I mean, I, I kind of ask, like, if we were praying these kingdom-type prayers, wouldn't it be easier to overcome sin? Because we would see what the kingdom's like and what he has for us is better and what we've been saved to, and it might make, make the, the better option easier to grasp. Out of prayers, real prayers, prayers like Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, where we come with our grand ideas and dreams of what Christian unity is and what living together is, or would we just come and forget ourselves, unable to be hurt by others, only able to be hurt for them, and loving them like Christ loved them? And wouldn't we walk away changed? I think, I don't know. Uh, sorry. There is no encounter, I'm just going to read this because I lost my place. There is no encounter with the reality of the kingdom. Oh, Ah, and there is really is not even much of an escape from what we wrongly call the real world. world. It is often just motions to motions. Oh, well, okay, now I know what I was trying to say. Okay, sorry. So normally when we pray, I think, that, I think that the thing is we don't normally pray prayers like this, is that we kind of throw dog, uh, God a bone. You know, not dog, God. Yeah. So we, we kind of throw God a bone. It's like, okay, I'm here to pray, and you want me to make some requests, so I throw those up, and maybe I'll even put some hands around each other. And certainly we don't mean it that irreverently, but it kind of comes off that way. And I'm not sure how often we are praying like prayers that like really get us in touch with the kingdom of God. So there's like no no encounter with the kingdom. It's just kind of like a a thing that we do. It's just motions for motion's sake. But that's not the rhythm of the New Testament. Jesus and the writers of the New Testament got away in prayer, and we see them like encounter the kingdom in prayer, and they come away like fueled towards some kind of mission. Where like look what Jesus did, and then look what the Holy Spirit did through the apostles, and, and I mean, we're talking about it today, right? That rhythm of prayer, that rhythm of like encountering the kingdom uh, seemed to fuel their mission. So, so I'm kind of ending now. Maybe get serious about Christian unity in our prayers. Pray for your Christian brothers and sisters by name, and may it cause you to remember that we have been called together to be Jesus to a lost, broken, and dying world pray, like open up your prayer with our Father and let it ring throughout your whole prayer so that you would know, like this isn't about me. It's much bigger. It's about Jesus and I'm joining with a multitude of his children and talking about how good our dad is. And speaking of praying for people by name, there's two quotes I wanted to give you because I think they're excellent questions to be asking of ourselves. Dallas Willard said, never criticize anybody you haven't prayed for that day. All right? I think that's a pretty good example of what could happen if we pray these kind of prayers. Another quote from Bonhoeffer says, says, I can no longer condemn or hate a brother for whom I pray, no matter how much trouble he causes me. That makes sense, right? I mean, isn't that what happens when you pray prayers that encounter the kingdom reality? We come out with changed hearts and minds, at least for 30 seconds, right? Able to live under the awesome rule of our king. 
And we better go back in prayer 30 seconds later or else we'll forget. It's a rhythm of prayer that keeps us in touch with, with that reality and with the truth that, that I can love you, that we're, we're brothers and sisters, and we have the same Father. Are you serious about Christianity? I just ask, are you serious about being a Christian? I don't think we can separate the two things. Is Christian unity or community, is that something you want just because you like to be served in a certain way? Or is your definition simply that if you have been saved, you have been saved together in and through Jesus Christ to be a people who proclaim his name to each other, to the nations, and ultimately back to God himself? Because you can't separate it. That's what we're saved to, to be united and to proclaim his name. Christian unity is just the way we live in the reality of the kingdom. And I think this one last quick thing that I, I would, it would be a bad thing for me to miss is that kingdom living, which is living in Christian unity, is equipped by prayer, which we just talked about, but that our prayers are equipped by reading and knowing the scriptures. And we see that with Jesus Christ. Like, in his time on earth, you better believe he read and knew the scriptures. And we get a glimpse into his childhood where he's doing it. And then he like wrapped his prayers around it, or wrapped those scriptures around his prayers. And uh, it made for some pretty awesome stuff to happen. Uh, so I, that's, that's the prescription. Read and know the scriptures. Pray. Kingdom seeking prayers. And may those things change you by the work of the Holy Spirit that we would live together and be unified together so that we would be a people bound together by the, the saving work, reconciling work of Jesus Christ. So we together proclaim his excellencies to one another, to the nations, and ultimately back to God. That's it. Would you pray with me? Our Father, I thank you so much for these folks, and I thank you for the opportunity this opportunity, I don't know, thank you for the blessing that you've given us to be saved to and reconciled to in and through Jesus Christ, each other, and to our Father in heaven. And would you like grip our hearts with that so we would hallow your name, so we would, so that we would be agents of change, that we'd be agents of doing your will here on earth as it is in heaven. pray that if we get if you would allow us to get Christian unity if your Holy Spirit would like open up our minds and allow us to comprehend the love of Jesus Christ so that we would get what the saving work is about I pray God that you would fuel us to point each other to Christ that you would fuel us to put off ourselves and that you would give us a lens uh, that we might see the way you see We pray that we would live the way you live. That we would be the, the temple. That we would be your dwelling place here on earth. That through us, your children, the world might know Jesus Christ. And might join in with us in being that same dwelling place. And that as we were spoken into existence to say, God, you are excellent. That we would become words and cre- <laughs> creations that to do that intentionally, and may our joy be full in that. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.